People of Adland, do you know how many listeners you can reach by advertising on a Muddy Knees Media podcast? Loads! Every single episode of Galazzo Alone is listened to by nearly 100,000 of those hard-to-reach 25 to 44-year-old men. But we do plenty more shows than that now. We've got the Offside Rule with Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen. We've got the Offside Rule WSL edition, the UK's premier women's football podcast. We've got series linked to podcasts that's dripping with celebrities. And then there's the rest of the Totally Football network, which includes the very lovely thetotallyfootballshow.com. If you'd like to talk about advertising with Muddy Knees Media, drop us a line on sales at muddykneesmedia.com. That's sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And listeners, don't keep the show to yourself. Leave us a review, rate us, share it with your friends, and subscribe wherever you listen to the rest of your podcasts and never miss an episode. Today on Golazzo, we're talking the little club that's had more stars per capita than anywhere in Italy. And more scandals too, but still the absolute lowest travelling support anywhere in the game. It's Udinese. It's Udine in the northeastern corner of Italy, just a short drive from Slovenia, not far from Austria. In fact, a hundred years ago, this was Austria, which may be why on special days people wander the streets of Udine in lederhosen and feathered hats, making middle European beats like this and saying things like, Mondi, James. Shemutle <laughs> bige. That's James Horncastle. Is that a bit of Friulian, uh, Friuliano? Yes. Hi, James. How are you? In Friuli? Yeah, in Fulance. Ah, right, okay, which is the local dialect. Gab Marcotte is also here. I am shocked. I do, I do not speak the <laughs> regional accent. Do you James speak is special. Ladin? Is, is it Ladin as well? That no, ah, Ladin, Ladin is Alto Adige, no? Yeah. But I think that it is spoken in parts of uh, oh, really? Friuli. Yeah. Basically, listen, we're up in the northeast of Italy at this point where things have got pretty mixed up geopolitically over the last couple of centuries and languages with them so yeah there's a whole bunch of other stuff there's Slovenian mixed in in what did you call it? Fru- Fulance Fulance and there's there's certainly a lot of uh, German or Germanic languages and, and, and all sorts of things it's a special area and Gab I want to say that it's home to a very special club it's home to Udinese mm. um Udine is a city, I think it's about like 80,000 people. So it's the 47th biggest city in Italy, right? I mean, people forget this yeah. because uh, there are lo- loads and loads of cities that, like Livorno, for example, is much bigger. But, um, but it's not just the 47th biggest. I mean, you know, Sesto San Giovanni is like three times as large, right? Yeah. But it's also the fact that there's nothing around it. it it's not like it's, it's, it's a city that's like an hour away from a major Pordinone. city. <laughs> no, but what I mean is, like, this is pretty rural stuff here frontier. that we're talking about. Yeah. It's half the size of Parma, for example, who are often regarded as the great example of a tiny club that, that, that makes it big. But they don't have an opera house as beautiful as Parma. No, they don't. What they do have is a lot of barracks. With Udine, I always think of that's one of the defining things of the town. It's, a, it's an army town, isn't it? I think historians have, have kind of argued that this is where cannons were used for the first time. Really? Not Udine. in Udine, but around that area right. in a... In a battle, 
Okay. Back in, I think, the 14th century or something like that. Oh, wow. I, I probably wildly... But I defer to you and you, with your four lunch... Uh, <laughs> So the, the the thing about the people from this area, the the, the stereotype, and I'm just like, think the most famous food I know is, is Dino Zoff, born in 1942 in Mariano del Friuli, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away, is these are people who are generally slightly introverted just simply because, you know, they're, they're people of few words. They're right. very simple people. If they were uh, uh, into furniture, they'd be shakers. I see. The people of few words, and words that generally begin with the letter Z. Certainly that's the case in our story today as we look back at Udinese, known as the Zebretti, the little Zebre, a story that will take in such diverse figures as Zanussi, Zaccaroni, and one in particular, Zico. Arriva Zico, il nuovo amico, che ogni domenica ha una sonnella manica. Artur Antunes Coimbra Zico to his friends like us who moved to this far-flung corner of Italy in 1983 in a move that caused some surprise. The number one player in the world leaving Flamengo for the little town of Udine. How did this happen? (laughs) There's a lot going on here. A lot of moving parts because um, you have uh, Lamberto Zanussi Mm-hmm. Lamberto Mazza. Mazza, who's, who's the head of uh, Zanussi. Zanussi. The electro-domestic, kind of the white goods uh, Yeah, I have a industry. Zanussi washing machine. There you go. I had that they serviced were, a few weeks ago. They were massive in the 80s as well, Zanussi. They were massive, was... but at this stage, James, they're mm. about to make all kinds of layoffs. I think they're about to make 4,500 people really? redundant. And at this stage, they think it's a great idea to go and spend a lot of money on Zico. Zanussi only had so much money that he could budget for Udinese and pay for a player like Zico. And so the idea was to uh, meet the asking price from Flamenco, which was, what, 6 billion lira? 6.2 billion. Okay, there you go. According to contemporary accounts. Was to set up a company, which I think had offices in London Mm -hmm. and Switzerland. And when they went to the London address... I think it was a church or something like that. Right. And and say, look, we're going to pay you the four four million up front, mm-hmm. but the rest of it we're going to do it through billion. this four billion. The rest of it we're going to you know raise from sponsorships. Like we're going to get Coca Cola to come on board. We're going to get Adidas to come on board. We're going to get all these companies to come on board. And that's and we're going to sell these image rights to Mediaset. And this is how we're going to pay for this. Right. But if there's one thing the Italian football authorities can't stand, it's financial irregularities. So they said, no, we're not convinced that you have the means to pay for Zico. So we're not going to let you sign him. And they got a little bit lucky because at the same time, the Fijici came down on Roma's move for Tonino Cerezo. Oh, right. And yeah, according to people who are actually, no, they were making an example of Roma and Tonino, who were late in getting the paperwork done for that, than for Zico. But luckily for them, the guy who wanted Tonino to sign for um, for Roma was a certain Andreotti. Ah. And Andreotti basically says, right, Vigici, do what you have to do. Just let Roma sign Tonino Cerezo. And that allowed Zico. Which is a good thing, because if not, the entire region would have split and gone to Austria, Gabriele. You mentioned Andreotti. To contextualize it, I know you like films. Yes. Giulio Andreotti is this sort of extraordinary figure. He was Italian prime minister, sort of 
I think eight times as part, he's a Christian Democrat. He had a big hunchback and, and thick glasses and, and weird ears that stuck out. And if he, there's a, if there's a mystery or controversy, yeah. He's, he's at the, he's at the, the heart, heart of it. Yeah, he's so just two references things you might have seen. One is the movie uh, Il Divo, which magnificent is magnificent film. Before Il Divo, if you remember, there was a famous Italian um, miniseries called uh, La Piovra. I think in okay. English it was called the Octopus, Octopus mm. Power yeah. of the Mafia. Yeah, where they made like with starring the very handsome Michele Placido. Where I think they made like four or five series, and then it kind of like the plot, and it implies that there is a person. At the center of everything. The puppet master. The puppet master. Is it Luciano Moggi? <laughs> no. Oh. But people have obviously drawn the Moggi Andreotti parallel. Right. And, and uh, it was this guy. Right. It was well, Giulio Andreotti. And the fact that he was responsible for ultimately, and maybe perhaps indirectly, for Zico, I mean, the second greatest Possibly football Possibly as a statesman, because he realized that the people in Udine were serious when they took to the streets, as they did, of that northeastern town chanting Zico or Austria. Either you give us our fancy Brazilian signing or we're going to hightail it to another country. And instead of the waltz, they got the samba in the end, James. But like the thing is, like this, this, (laughs) this part of Italy had been severely disrupted, devastated, you might say, by an earthquake, what, a few years before. And Zico, I think, had come over to play in a charity game. Um, and he was telling this story about how the Brazilian government, I think, were, or the Brazilian FA were very reluctant to let the players go, and it was only whilst they were in the departure lounge that they got the kind of paperwork to sign off on them going, presumably it's some kind of insurance thing. So again, he all thinks this is some kind of destiny that he would end up in Udine, which again, I think, is testament to the uh, strength and depth of Italian football at that time, where... This has to be one of the greatest transfers of all time. This that is, Zico could go to Udinese. It's yeah, I mean, Juninho to Barra would be the example in, in, in yeah, the UK. But this Zico is, was the second best player in the world at the time, right? As much as I love Juninho, Juninho Paulista, I've even been to his pizzeria in Sao Paulo and blah, blah, blah. He's little and cute and pleasant. Like, he was never the second best player in the world. He's not even the second best player from Sao Paulo. He's not even the second best short player in the world. He's not even, he may be the second best Brazilian named Juninho. I will give him that one after the free kick specialist. But yeah, this would be like, take your pick, Messi or Ronaldo, whoever you think is second best, you know, moving to Bournemouth. Just let that sink in. His first game, James. Yes. Against Genoa. Yep. 5-0 win. And just people go crazy. He scores eight free kicks. And one of the great stories about Zico whilst he was at Udinese is he's in training. He's doing his free kicks and he keeps hitting the bar. And he's like, something's off here. You know, I think this goal isn't kind of regulation kind of dimensions. And so he goes over to the kit man uh, or whoever was in charge of that. And he says, look, I keep hitting the bar free kicks. I always score these free kicks. There must be something wrong with your goalposts. And the guy goes and measures it up and he's like, Zico, you're absolutely right. They're five centimeters lower than they should be. Incredible. Two seasons he spends there. 79 appearances he makes. 57 goals, and this was not a, a free-scoring time no. in Serie A, and pretty special game to finish as well. Do you remember how it all came to an end? So this is May the 12th, 1985, when, as fate would have it, Udinese with Zico discussing what he's going to do, with, will he come back to, to Udinese? It looks pretty unlikely. 
are facing Napoli. So you have Zico against the Neapolitans with this new young Argentine fellow, Maradona. And the match really lives up to expectations. Maradona opens the scoring after just four minutes with a free kick. L'Argentino di metterci in evidenza, ecco che parte il suo tiro. Splendido, ed è gol. Ha pennellato la sua esibizione Maradona subito in apertura con questo splendido gol, la quale... Udinese equalised from a Zico free kick, which is turned in after a bit of a goal mouth scramble. Then in the second half, there's an absolutely extraordinary free kick by Luigi Diagostini. Parte invece Edigno, anzi il tocco è per Diagostini. Grande sventa e Incredible kind of South American style thunderbolt from miles outside the area. And then the final goal, 2-2, Maradona equalises with a hand of God. Long hoof upfield, he goes up, collects it and then leaps over and appears to head it. But he's actually punching it in as in he would famously do not long after against England. Zico afterwards on Noventesimo Minuto really really uh, not holding back. I imagine they went to town on that on Il Processo. I'm sure they did. Yeah. You work all week and this guy comes along and robs everyone. Eh? Una cosa incredibile. Oh, the other thing about Udinese when they had Zico is like we have to make as much kind of money out of this as possible. You know, this is a great opportunity. A little bit like, say, what Juventus have been doing with Cristiano Ronaldo, but on a different scale altogether. And they did all these kind of innovative things. I mean, this predates Zico as well, but they were, I think, were the first Italian club to have sponsors on their shorts uh, and they kind of broke the way through for that mm. they had a sort of jumbotron at the uh, at the Friuli which was the biggest kind of screen um, that you could that was at an Italian stadium at the time and then they had halftime entertainment as well around this where they had some of the biggest and most popular singers basically come and entertain Miani the, uh, the <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he was there playing his big uh, San Remo hit Rebelle su questa terra. One can only hope so. Sounds a little bit gap like this. Damn. That was the best thing I've found on YouTube in a long time, I think. Miani. <laughs> Just amazing. All right, well, so that was Zico, and he left, and basically he never went back because he was being chased by the tax authorities over a bunch of unpaid money. Uh, I mean, he's gone back since, but certainly didn't return to play at Udinese. And that was kind of one version of Udinese under Matza. But the one that we're more familiar with is all about Pozzo. And it's, I mean, it's the one that defines Udinese, as I understand them. Father and son. Yeah, Giampiero Pozzo and Gino Pozzo. So Giampiero Pozzo buys the club from Lamberto Mazza in 1986. Now, previously, through their history, they've been kind of yo-yoing up and down between top division and even as low as the third. Uh, one excellent season in 54-55 when they got to second place, but was subsequently done for combine, for match fixing in that, that period. Uh, in fact, uh, they were sent down for fixing a 3-2 last day win in the early 50s. In 79-80, they were dot points as part of the Calcio Scomessi. And in fact, when Pozzo was buying them from Mazza, they were in the process of being docked nine points as part of the Totonero scandal. Anyway, he comes in and starts what has become heralded as one of the most far-sighted and well-run football clubs in Italy. First with a scouting program 
and a really, really comprehensive global network of, of scouts, and first in many other ways as well. Yeah, so the, the scouting program, which Giampiero Pozzo is obviously older now, but he's been old for a while now. And he's sort of like the, the patriarch with the white hair and the beard. And it's really his son, Gino, who who just drives everything and, and probably even at a very young age drove it at the start. So they pushed the scouting network. They, they told me at the time, I don't know, these things kind of go up and down, that you know they spend more on scouting than all but sort of four or five clubs in the world. One of their big strengths is they scout, they look where other people do not. And they look at a very, very young age. And people thought that the there's some secret sauce, or it must be the director of football or whatever. But these guys have come and remember for a while there was this guy Leonardi who took all the credit for everything. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he moves and no, oh, look, he moves and he's rubbish. So it's obviously not him, you know. I mean, one of their successes, one of the most obvious examples is is Alexis Sanchez, who, you know, they signed him, I think, when he was 16 or, or 17. I think he'd been on loan in Argentina. Yeah, they signed? keep him on loan for a while before they bring him over. Yeah, but they signed him for two and a half. Well, it would have been no, illegal. I think a million, a million euro. No, I think it's more than that. Was I think, I think, I think, I think, yeah, it, it was about two and a half million pounds, three million, which for them is a huge advance. And think about it. This is, that's when the guy's 16 years old. Right. Like this is the sort of thing Real Madrid does. Chuck so much money. But they did that. Because they were sure, and they were sure because Alexis is from a town called Tocopilla or something like that, up in the uh, up in the north of, of Chile near the border with Peru. They had basically known him, his family, his aunts and uncles, his pets, all his coaches, from the time he particularly was particularly his pets, I'm guessing. particularly his pets, yeah, from the time that that he was he was ten years old. That is how capillary the network is. So when other clubs, we started making a name for himself at Colo Colo, and uh, other clubs came in for him. All of a sudden, you know, there's Real Madrid walking through the door. There's Manchester United, you know, everybody wanting a piece of El Nino Maravilla, even though he was still very, very young. And yet they were able to leverage their longstanding relationship with his family because they first came into his life when he was 10 or 11 years old. And they've done this everywhere, all over the globe. And they've done it with with tremendous, tremendous success. So the three million were for the club. But, you know, he could have still said, no, screw this. Right. I want to go to Real Madrid. But how much no. did they sell him for in the end to Barcelona? Uh, it was only $26 million, But at the time, $26 million was a lot of, yeah. a lot of money. You look at some of the other deals. Yeah, Quinta, who they got for, I think, 100,000 euros, sold for about $11 million. Uh, Suliali Montari, they picked up for 200K euros, sold for $12 million. Davide Pizarro, what a player. 300,000 euros they got him for and sold him for $12 million. Just so many. People love to play that game. Imagine if they hadn't sold all their best players. But the the the, the first eleven you could make out of the the players who've been through uh, their gates: uh, Abel Balbo, Nesta Sensini, well, Zico, of course. We mentioned Pizarro, Bierhoff. Oliver Bierhoff, Handanovic, Di Natale, Fiore, I mean, Quagliarella. Just, just to key in on a couple of those names, mm. Di Natale was signed for like a hundred grand from from Empoli. Um, Handanovic was free from Domzale in, in Slovenia and Bierhoff had been a guy who played second division football for Askeli for a few years and right. they picked him up for I think 1 million and then they sold him to Milan for 12 and a half so, so yeah well let's talk then about Bierhoff and that, and that Zaccaroni Udinese side Bierhoff who'd not been a particular success in in Germany and, and even at Askley, I remember the famous story of him getting beaten up at the traffic lights 
because the club weren't doing well. He and moves. He's a big man, by the way. Mm. Yeah. So it took a lot of people. Or a very brave person. Of course, by '96, he's a slightly bigger name because he's won Euro '96 for Scoring for Germany. A winner in the final. Right against the Czech Republic. He scored twice, didn't he? he came on, scored twice, I think. He scored the, the golden goal. But the following season, he's part of an absolutely extraordinary match. The defining game, certainly of Zaccaroni's great period, Alberto Zaccaroni, at that club. So this is 13th of April, 1997, and Udinese was still a pretty modest kind of regional entity. Travelled to the toughest ground in, in Italy, the Stadio degli Alpi, uh, to take on Juventus. Within a couple of minutes, they get a man sent off, at which point pretty much any manager is going to take off a forward and just try and keep it tight, stave off the inevitable. Zaccaroni stuns the nation by leaving his team exactly as they are. It's a defender who's been sent off, so they're now playing 3-3-3 with Poggi, Amoroso and Bierhoff at front. And while Italy listens incredulous at the Radiolino, they start scoring goals. One, two, three strikes at the Stadio delle Alpi. Finisce il primo tempo in questo istante con l'Udinese in vantaggio per 1-0. Amoroso al 42esimo. Tiro fa raddoppiato per l'Udinese dopo un minuto e 30 secondi di gioco di inizio della ripresa. Dunque 2-0 per l'Udinese sulla Juventus qui a Torino. Amoroso. Gentili? Eh sì, Amoroso ha portato a trail punteggio a favore dell'Udinese. Azione personale esattamente al terzo minuto. At this point Juve started to get given penalties. They miss one. Vieri misses that. And then Turci, the Udinese keeper, saves from Zinedine Zidane. And oh my word, it's a monumental 3-0 win. Former Cremonese goalkeeper Turci, who famously played with uh, with the legendary Alviero Chiorri, who Gianluca Vialli reckons is one of the most talented players he'd ever seen. Really? Wow. Yes, and Mancini gets very angry when you bring it up because he says, what about me? What anyway, about me? that's a digression. So you mentioned there Marcio Moroso, and his story, I think, is another one that kind of illustrates how well they operated because Marcio Moroso, I think, is like a year older than the original uh, Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldo Nazario Lima, was that? Yeah, nice. There you go. But when he broke in, he was kind of like, Ronaldo, you know how like Altafini was Pelé before Pelé? Marcio Moroso was Ronaldo before Ronaldo. Except he suffered like some sort of devastating knee injury. Didn't play for, for, for like 15 months. I think it was actually like they, 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 they botched the surgery. Everybody was doubtful about it. Came back, scored a few goals, but everybody was very doubtful about him. Udinese went and they did all this due diligence on the doctors who operated him and what went on. They had people watching him and training every day until eventually they said, all right, let's roll the dice that this guy's going to be fine. And he comes over and, I mean, he wasn't quite Ronaldo, but he was pretty darn good. And they sold him for an absolute ton of money to, was it Borussia Dortmund, if I remember? I think it was either Dortmund or Palmer. I think he's still their record sale to this day, and that won't be adjusted for inflation either, I think. I think it was 28 million that they sold him for. But I think the Ronaldo comparison is quite appropriate because he was super quick. And one of the things that Zach does in this game is they soak up lots and lots of pressure, and then they just go along to Bierhoff, and Bierhoff's trademark was being excellent in the air, and he would flick it onto Amaroso and they just could not cope with it. And they just, you know, hang on, what's going on? You know, we're, we're playing 11 v 10 here and we, we keep getting stung like this. And yeah, that very much kind of helped make Zach's name right. in Italian football. I mean, I think the job he'd got 
prior to this was Cesena, uh, no? No, he was so he's from Cesinatico, which is right. the same city as Marco Pantani. But he had been in charge Paracalugo. of Paracalugo. Yeah. Is that where he was before? I don't know if that's where he was, but that's where he started. Well, okay, so he, he started out there, but his previous job before going to Udinese was at Cosenza. Ah, yeah. And um, at Cosenza, Ooh. I think they finish they finish 15th in, in the second division. But just from, you know, sort of uh, half-assed internet research, seems to have been a hell of a job because they had like a nine-point penalty for some kind of irregularities, would it be, I don't know, fiddling things. But yeah, like a mini Mazzari, let's say, at, uh, at Regina right. uh, back in the day. He has a similarly huge impact at Udinese. Finishes no, but he's third. so much nicer than Mazzari. No, without <laughs> he's doubt. He's a lovely, lovely guy. The tailor. Yeah. Yeah, I the mean. Taylor. So basically, yeah, they finished third. Following season from that incredible Juve game, Bierhoff goes on the rampage, scores 27 goals in 32 appearances, and then he and Zaccaroni make the trip to um, and Helvig as well. Thomas Helvig, they they all make the trip from Danesino. Danesino, yeah, they make the move to to Milan. It doesn't work out as well there. Berlusconi not impressed by. Still but win a title. He wins the league. Yeah, but do you remember Berlusconi was always having a pop at him? Well, like, Berlusconi was like, you're a communist, yep. which was his thing. And then he was like, this is Milan. We only play 4-4-2 and we like a number 10 and you play with a back three. What's going on? And he's like, I've just won the league title for God's <laughs> sake. He's coached Milan, Inter and Juventus, which I think only Trapattoni has done that as well, which is pretty remarkable. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Zaccaroni's Udinese were one of the classic iterations of the Zibretti of late, but there have been two others. Well, I mean, the guy who replaced him when he went to uh, Milan was uh, Francesco Guidolin. And, uh, yeah, his first ball, I think, they finished sixth, and uh, Amoroso was top scorer, Capo Cananiere. But it didn't kind of work out. And then he came back many, many years later. And if people have already kind of forgotten how good this team was, um, I say you can maybe compare them a little bit with Atalanta today in terms of a small team punching well above its weight. Um, yeah, they also doing it with a ton of foreigners as well. Yeah, which is what Atalanta are doing now. <laughs> but the, the, my point, Gab, I suppose, is... You know, Gasparini's, what, in third or fourth year of his spell at Atalanta. The issue with these clubs is, is sustaining you know, this ability to kind of punch above their weight. You know, the first team that had Gasp at Atalanta was kind of, right, we've lost our first five games, we're going to play the kids. And then they have all these kids, and then they sell all those kids in January and May, and now they've got a team that's entirely full of kind of quite right. old, really good foreign players. Udinese, during this time, it was kind of almost all sort of finding really good foreign players, developing them. But their recruitment, as we saw with that mid-90s team, you're always going to have peaks and troughs, cycles. Your recruitment can't be flawless every time. Sure. The second Guidolin spell, that 2010-2011 season, which was just, I mean, I think the greatest, in terms of numbers, Udinese's greatest season. They had the highest number of wins, most goals scored. They were just putting goals past everyone. 3-1 with Napoli, a 4-4 against Milan 7-0 they go to and this is the extraordinary one when they go to Palermo and score seven goals against them four of them from 
Alexis Sanchez. Di Natale la fa passare per Sanchez, può andarsene tutto solo davanti a Sirigu. Sanchez, Sanchez, ancora Sanchez e sono tre. Splendido gol di Alexis Sanchez. And Di Natale finishes with 28 goals that season. You've got Andanovic in goal as well. Who Medi Benatia at the back. Medi Benatia at the back when as he well. Was really, when he was really good. Right. They finished fourth that year under Guidlin and they go into the, the Champions League qualifiers and, and uh, where they, they meet Arsenal and it doesn't work out. The following season... Same thing again, but this time they come up against Braga. And that, there's the penalty kick business with, how do you say his name? Michael Swell. Michael Swell, where he tries to penenka. Prova! Il cucchiaio, Michael Swell. Resta fermo, Beto. Parte Ruben Michael e il Braga. Giocherà la fase a gironi della Champions. L'Udinese si arrende, si arrende soltanto ai rigori. Some people look at that and say that's where the glory years ended for Udinese. never got over it. I mean, I, I suppose the really unfortunate thing is, is that team finished third um, and today that would be good enough to get you automatically into the Champions League yeah. group stages. The Back way- then, it got you into the playoffs and we all know that playoffs yeah. tended to come before the season in Serie A had started. Yeah. Italian teams were half-baked, the transfer window was still open. And yeah, they invariably went out. So, so, so Michael Swell became like, for you know, he became like a bad word. This was a qualifier with Braga, which Udinese were expected to go through, and yeah, and it finishes the second leg in a penalty shootout. And he steps up, and and the idiot does a panenka. It's like, who do you think you are? But I was curious, he's obviously Brazilian, but like, giving your Brazilian roots is, is Michael Swell a made up name? Is it like Mycon? Mycon and Swellen. Or I don't know. I, <laughs> have you ever encountered anybody named Michael Swell? His name in the anagraph mm. is uh, Michael Swell Reginaldo de Matos. So it does appear to be his actual name as opposed to a nickname. But I don't know. Certainly it's not a name you want to utter too much around Houdini. Because since then... Did he go on to do anything? That, that I know. He haunts Francesco Guidolin. <laughs> yeah. But you know, no, but seriously, this was a club who... In the uh, 19 seasons up to then, had qualified for European competition 11 times. Since that penalty kick, they've not been back once. And they've been, certainly, the last, I think the last five seasons have been in the bottom, finished in the bottom half It's of almost Syria. like the Pozzo's bought Watford. Yeah. Well, all right. So we'll come on to that. One thing I do want to mention, though, that this that incredibly golden period, and we haven't even touched on Spalletti's version of... Uh, yeah, because Gap's uh, here. We can't talk about we can't <laughs> talk about Spalletti. But that was another great side. You had uh, Di Natale with Iaquinta back then, gun toting Iaquinta, and uh, some some pretty excellent football. But they had this record, which I mentioned at the top, of the lowest away attendance ever. They played a game oh, at yeah. Sampdoria, <laughs> and the gates are open, and one fan. That turns guy. Up. One fan turns up. This guy who. With the Friulian flag. Arrigo Brovedani. Yeah. So he basically, I mean. It's just extraordinary. I mean, you'd expect maybe a handful of fans to make mm. it. This was a City A match. One fan turned up and sat there the entire match on his own in the entire kind of one end of the, the tribuna of the, uh, the Marassi. We should point out, right? So yeah. they, part of the reason, so Udine as a, as, as a town, I mean, you mentioned all the different influences. They, they, there's some like industry there. It's not like Veneto. They never went through a period where they were really poor, but they're just kind of content to be left alone. And, the countryside around there is all flat, it's really cold, 
and it gets really, really foggy. Now, I know people will point out that it's like that in Padania, where I'm from, in the area around Milan. You don't like the solitudine. It's nothing like that. <laughs> I, um, I spoke to somebody who was involved with their youth academy, which I believe has produced zero top-flight football. No? no? Am I forgetting somebody? Well, at the moment, the goalkeeper of Napoli is Alex Meret. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. It's also uh, Friulian and, and I think Scoufet, who well, before yeah. that was... Meret and Scoufet, yeah. yeah. Remember Scoufet, they thought was going to be really good, he goes to Atletico Madrid, and mm. like, anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, not, they haven't produced any actual footballers, just the odd goalkeeper. Um, but they said that they went through this one phase where taking advantage of, of different loopholes, they had brought in, this is back when rules were, were, were a lot more liberal. They brought in a whole bunch of, of players from, from West Africa uh, to go with the local players from Freely. Because one of the reasons was the local players, because there aren't very many of them, they had nobody to play against mm. and the level was, was poor. So that was their excuse, right? In reality, obviously they said, oh, let's bring in these African kids and see who develops. But then the fog would roll in and they were just all so miserable all day and they ended up abandoning the project and actually often training indoors. Gav mentions the West African connection. And you tell the passport story? No, La Mossa Vincente oh, okay. for Zaccaroni was to bring on the Ghanaian Mohamed Gargo for Thomas oh. Locatelli in that 3 winner. You look at some of the Ghanaians that they've had over the years, Asamoah Jan, Kwadwo Asamoah, Stephen Appiah. It was just a good one. And Stephen Appiah, by the way, like at 18, he looked like a world beater. So many great names, so many great seasons. And, and as I said, we haven't even mentioned Spalletti. He was the first guy to get them into the Champions League back in the early noughties, Gav. Yes, of course, this was a, this was a different Spalletti. In the same way that <laughs> Mr. Kurtz was a brilliant employee of the company before he went upriver in Heart of Darkness, so too was that Spalletti before he, before he went off to the wilds of St. Petersburg. Um, this guy was a personable, super talented coach who achieved wonders with Roma uh, mm. and other clubs, but originally, I think, made his name at probably as much as Udinese or even before that. He was at, was it? He was at well, Samp and Venezia. Yeah. He famously kind of took Samp down. So that was a slightly <laughs> unfortunate. The Samp season, he was there, and then Enrico Mantovani fired him uh, with them above the relegation zone, and Mantovani brought in in his place David Platt. Mm. And it is. Platy and a disastrous only his mates call him Platy and a disastrous <laughs> set of results saw the club precipitated down into the bottom three at which point Platt left and Spalletti came back in two stints at the same club in the same season is a tricky also repeated with another uh, of um, football's most loyal presidents uh, Maurizio Zamparini at Venezia where he was fired yeah. and then rehired and then fired again all in the space of one season but at Udine at least he was a success. And as you mentioned, at Roma, he was tactically uh, groundbreaking. Maybe we should, time, yeah. we should have an episode about Spalletti. Spalletti yeah. Always. We should also remind people yep. that, so here in England, when a manager gets sacked, mm. he goes and he, you know, he issues a statement via the LMA website, which nobody reads, but unfortunately I'm on their mailing list, so I get all these like, you know, sort of statement from Paul Dickov, like, but whatever. Um... But what generally happens is here in England, they negotiate a payoff when they're gone. In Italy, no, they stay under contract because it's cheaper for the clubs to just keep paying them. Mm. And then when somebody else then wants to come in for them, then that way they can charge compensation. Mm. But of course, when you keep paying them, it'll also mean that if you're you know, one of those unfortunate 
uh, owners and you decide to sack managers. Hey, look, I've sacked managers for the third time this season. I know I don't want to pay any more money. I'll just bring in one of the old guys. So you've got people like Davide Ballardini who seemingly like, you know, stay under contract forever and keep coming back to different clubs. Mm. Ballardini's probably still on retainer at Cagliari and Palermo. At the same time, yeah. <laughs> Magnificent. Anyway, Udinese, you mentioned the fact that recent years have not been so kind to the Zibretti and some people point to that penalty miss as a turning point. But James, as you mentioned, the bigger issue has been the fact that the Podsos have found themselves a new toy to play with, the toy by the name of Watford. Yeah, I mean, just looking at some of Watford's signings, some of them do strike me as classic Udinese signings at a time when the transfer market wasn't so inflated. For example, I could completely see Richarlison one day you know, sort of going to Udinese, but if you look at what they... Sorry, on, on the Richarlison, though, this is a good indication of what we mentioned before, Alexis Sanchez, of the way these guys operate. Mm. When they find somebody they really like, they will go and blow the budget. I mean, they spent $20 million, I think, on, on Richarlison, which you know, for Watford was a ton of money. In the same way that they spent three million on a on a sixteen year old Alexis Sanchez, and I think that's part of the secret. The way they evaluate players is very much in terms in terms of value. So, if they think you're a you're a five million euro player and they can get you for two million, they'll do it. Equally, if they think you're a fifty million euro player, they get you for twenty million. They will push the boat out, and and that's something that's worked for them. And I think allowed them to sign players who would ordinarily go to bigger clubs. Just briefly, the reason that buying Watford would have such an impact on on Udinese, what would that be? Having a club in the richest league in the world, mm. which yeah, they got that club there, is ultimately much better for a family whose business is football than Udinese these days. Right. It diverted attention. It also diverted players. There was a certain movement of players up the kind of Pozzo pyramid, the other club that were... For a while, your, part your of that. Your Britos's. Granada. Your, your Baramis. Yeah, your yeah. Mateo Vidra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, Renegis. we should point out that officially, this is not a multi-ownership situation. No. Because one Pozzo owns Udinese and his son owns the other one. So these are two very separate entities. Well, for now, it's Giampaolo Pozzo who remains in charge of Udinese. Something tells me Gab, that you'd like to sign off with a little Pozzo anecdote. Very minor thing, but Udinese, to their credit, were also one of the first, of, in the newest batch, were one of the first uh, Italian clubs to go and invest money in their stadium. I don't think they quite build a new stadium, but they remodeled um, the Stadio Friuli under some sort of long-term lease where they put the money in. Two things about this. One is they colored all the seats, yeah. so even when it's empty... <laughs> It doesn't look like rubbish. It doesn't look like, you know, the, the, the San Paolo, which looks like a desert. Um, the other thing is, even before that, you talked about their innovation. I think they were one of the first clubs in Europe to build, I don't know if they, I want to use the plural luxury boxes, but they had one luxury box, at least, with sort of this, uh, this sort of dark glass. And you could look, and during the games, they'd always put, you know, they'd always, the camera would always get trained on, on the glass. And my injury memory is seeing Giampiero Pozzo, usually dressed in black with his big white Ken Batesian beard, sitting in one of those giant office chairs that like would swivel mm. in this room, but like literally by himself, watching the game behind right. the glass. Like that lone fan at Sampdoria. Eating some exactly. San Daniele yeah. ham or okay. something, you know. All right, Zico aside, who's been Udinese's greatest player? Di Natale. Toto Di Natale, yeah. Uh, fair. Pair. And listener, if you'd like to know why Gab and James 
are so swift in that affirmation, you only need to go back and listen to our very special Galazzo on Anthony Christmas. There you go, Udinese. I hope, you know, whatever it is, the Pozzos rediscover their love for the Zibretti. Well, or... This is the thing. I mean, they, they, I think one of the... Andrea Carnivale, uh-huh. who was up front with Maradona back at Napoli, he's their kind of head of scouting, has claimed that Y-Scout killed Udinese. Oh, right, because everyone can do it. Because everyone can do it. They don't have to be at these under-17 World Cups or these sub-20 or sub-21 tournaments in South, South America. You know, you can pretty much watch them from your, your laptop in... Stoke. Will we see their like again? I don't know. But for now, that's been the Udinese story. If you've enjoyed it, do check out our other Golazzo podcasts, touching on such diverse topics as Pippo Inzaghi and legendary Italian TV show Il Processo. There's loads of other great ones as well. Zola. Loads for you to enjoy, listener. We'll sign off with that. For now, from James, Gabriele and myself, it's Arrivederci. Gabrielato di calcio italiano. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>